Welcome to the MBUK podcast. In this series, we'll be looking back through some of the moments that helped shape the sport of mountain biking. From the pioneers that paved the way, bikes that broke the tech boundaries, and the events that pushed the very limits of the sport, to the racers who will be forever cemented in our memories for their antics on and off the track. We'll even do our best to predict how things will look in the future. If you enjoy what we're doing, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your mates. And if you have time, please give us a review. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the MBUK podcast. I'm Tom Marvin and with me today, my co-host who is here and every episode, it's Rob Weaver. How are you getting on, Rob? Good, yeah, you can't get rid of me, can you? I cannot get rid of you, <laughs> like, like a, a bad, bad smell. smell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also joining us, our guest for the day is Rach from MBUK, who does all the features in our magazine. How's it going, Rach? Yeah, it's going pretty good, thanks. Excellent stuff. So today, we thought we would look at how... The world of being a professional mountain biker has changed over the decades. From the days of making, well, from the days of racing and occasionally getting your photo in the race results in the magazine, through to the YouTube stars and the Instagram and TikTok. Is that a thing? TikTok. You're asking the wrong person, mate. Yeah, we, we might talk about that, but we don't really know what it is because we're all a bit old for that. But we're going to talk about how the life of a pro has changed over the past 40 years of mountain bike history. Quite a while. Yeah, it's quite a, more than me, isn't it? Yeah, some of us have been around <laughs> a bit longer. <laughs> yeah, sure. Since the beginning. <laughs> All right. So um, I think the obvious place to start really is well, racing, because that's yeah. the obvious way into it, right? Well, to make a living, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, back in the early 90s, if you wanted to make a living out of riding a bike, you'd mm -hmm. have to get between the tapes. Or, if you weren't building a brand yourself, if you weren't yeah. you know, the engineer and mechanic. Sure. Yeah. As a rider, yeah. you'd need to be between the tapes or... I don't know, maybe be like a, a professional trials rider. Not, yeah. I'm not too sure there were that many mm -hmm. in the early days, but the easiest way was go racing, cross country or downhill. Mm -hmm. It was really all we had. And you'd get paid to get good results. Yeah, Like you said, you might get your picture occasionally in a magazine, but that was kind of about it. Yeah. Make some money from, yeah, winning a race is going to give you a bit of a paycheck, but otherwise it's sponsorship deals from your race team. Exactly. And in, you know, in the 90s when it was you know, racing was broadcast on mainstream TV, on Eurosport in, you know, Europe, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then um, whatever channels they had in the US would show it. You had the big outside sponsors come in and actually you could make a hell of a lot of cash yeah. back in the day. Absolutely. Yeah. How much were the big guys making those those days? <sighs> That's a tricky one. I guess like um, I remember watching, uh, I watched an interview with Missy Giovi and I think she was on, Maybe like a couple of hundred thousand. Really? From maybe from just Cannondale at the time. Yeah. So she may have had other endorsements as well. Yeah. But there was quite a bit of money floating around. Yeah. Some yeah. Of, more than there she, is now. I think she said something about a million dollar with all her sponsors. With all the endorsements. Went, yeah, endorsements and things. And there's what, maybe she one or two mainstream. making that this year? There's not many pro racers making that at the moment. No. No. But you know, back then there was um Less coverage. So if you made it and you made it in the big time, the mainstream, I guess you kind of deserved a, mm -hmm. a big heap of cash. There was all, you know, it was, there was car brands sponsoring bike teams. There was all sorts of mm -hmm. um, outside support, which helped, you know, keep keep the cash rolling. Yeah. I mean, this all sounds like an incredibly professional outfit that was cool. going on, you know. Well, if you speak to the top guys from back in the day, especially from our country, Warner, PT, and everyone else that kind of sort of follows suit with those guys, I'm sure they would say, 
it was not professional right. in the slightest. When I kind of got into it, the big thing was the after parties and some people would take the after parties and maybe start them a little bit before the actual race. Right. So <laughs> there were a few people, you know, happy to ride with hangovers still amazingly could do really well, mm -hmm. but we hadn't really, or not everyone had embraced training and right. maybe in the cross country world, Rach, maybe it was a bit different to say for, for those guys. Yeah, I think because a lot of them came from cycle cross yeah. or a few from road coming over where it was a bit more strict i guess with training less yeah. the party scene yeah downhill always seemed to have the vibe of the sort of crazy party animals the right tag a, crew to a certain extent i guess it's still the same with the training in it as well rather than just the yeah loose just, up the parties back then in downhill just wasn't it wasn't seen it wasn't seen as cool mm -hmm. if you were out on your road bike three four times a week in the gym two three times a week and then busting a gut on a downhill bike mm -hmm. that just wasn't cool the idea was even though a lot of those guys did a lot of that stuff yeah never talked about it but you just say oh you know turn up ride downhill bike mm -hmm. go and get absolutely slaughtered after yeah and that was kind of how it played out yeah i mean i remember martin ashton told me a story about um is it cadell evans he was he was on volvo canada at the same time as martin yeah and i think they were they were doing some team camp somewhere and there was a photo shoot and Cadell wasn't needed. And Martin, I think, said he left him in a hotel room on a turbo trainer. And when he got back hours and hours later, Cadell was still on the turbo mm. trainer. He hadn't left. I mean, Cadell Evans is now racing World Tour Road stuff or had been. Is well, he won the Tour de France, it. right? Oh, so yeah. <laughs> he, it probably stood him in good stead, right? <laughs> so, I mean, and John Tomac, you know, was racing, you know, if we're going all the way back, John Tomac was yeah. racing mountain bikes and road bikes on what 7-Eleven team, was it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, back before he was a fully paid up mountain bike pro. Yeah. So yeah, there was definitely exceptions and the likes of um, Nico and then Caroline Chausson mm. and, and people like that who were clearly grafting and all they wanted to do was win. Mm -hmm. You know, it, gave them a, a great life yeah paid them probably pretty well but they were so focused on what they were doing mm -hmm. that's that's kind of what they did so when the likes of palmer sean palmer got involved and then uh more money came in and those guys all know what to do with the money and they had some <laughs> fairly extreme parties by mm -hmm. the sounds of things yeah especially when i when i was getting into it it was very much like yeah you just go to the race and you just go and get absolutely smashed yeah and that was the that was the thing to do there was nothing about like actually you probably want to take it steady because mm -hmm. there's another race next weekend and you probably need to do a bit of work in order to yeah do well so i presume you've done a bit of hungover racing rich have you ever entered a race when you're um still steaming from the night before how <laughs> no, did it feel i think i don't think i have because i think i would injure myself even more if i was <laughs> i'm pretty good at crashing without having a fuzzy head a fuzzy head <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't make for um, a great Monday, a great Saturday morning when you sort of got to crawl out of bed and uh, go and lay down a race run at exactly. 10 in the morning. <laughs> exactly. So I guess these days, obviously, if we're going to talk about racing, continue for a minute or two, things have professionalised yeah. greatly over the past 40 years. And now, you know, when you see the, the guys and girls who race downhill, like they're stacked, they're super strong. They're spending a lot of time in the gym. They're riding road bikes. They're doing cross training. You know, I think Piron's done loads of peaks now. When he's not been able to ride a bike, he's been keeping his fitness up by doing a lot of hiking and out in mm. the mountains. So, you know, there's a lot of money 
going into the sport, so they have to be professional in that respect, but also in terms of the toll that takes on their body, being stronger means you're better able to get over those injuries. You better, you know, if you're going to crash, you're not going to, you know, bulldog, case in point, so strong, recovered incredibly quickly, you know. I and mean, Kyle straight as well. Yeah, Coming exactly. back to Rampage this year. After yeah. Breaking his back and skull or something. G. Atherton. Oh my <laughs> G- God, poor old G. Yeah, <laughs> that lad. I mean, and in almost, I would say, Dan, G and Rach, in the UK specifically, maybe Aaron Gwynn over in the US, mm-hmm. were, were very much the people that you could say help step things up even uh-huh. further. You know, um, the Aston family moved out of Somerset up to um, North Wales because the terrain was that much harder. Mm-hmm. And they were never shy about, you know, sharing some of their um, exploits in the gym, just how hard they worked, how much effort they put in. And, you know, they reap the rewards. They've mm-hmm. done incredible, you know, well, I mean, the stats speak for themselves. Gwyn's the same, you know, he... He wasn't afraid to come in. He'd, he'd seen uh, the work ethic that the motocross guys made, mm-hmm. you know, would do. And how professional that sport got in the early 2000s with the likes of Ricky Carmichael and those guys stepping up and showing that if you work super hard, chances are it will pay off in the long run if you've got the skills to back it up. And uh, those guys made some serious cash. Maybe when there wasn't quite as much money in the sport, mm-hmm. they still seemed to thrive, which probably speaks volumes. Yeah. I mean, we've talked obviously about the racing side of it and how, you know, back in the early days, you win your race, you get your name out there, you get onto into a magazine or whatever it is. Over sort of what, like the mid to late 90s into the early 2000s, we saw the rise of, you know, videos and DVDs and all that sort of stuff, which really gave another dimension to getting your face out there. Obviously, the racing was still super important, but perhaps making a name for yourself where maybe you weren't going to win the races but you were a personality or someone with particular riding style which game became kind of cool to see even if you weren't getting the results you could then start to still maybe make a name for yourself maybe make a bit of a living through videos dvds that sort of thing how did that progress well i think importantly the sport diversified a bit mm-hmm. right sort of mentioned about carl straight earlier we've had rampage now for 20 odd years yeah that whole sort of free ride movement, you know, when the free riders came around, they weren't there to race. They were there to try and ride the craziest lines possible. Off the back of that, they were trying to film mm-hmm. that stuff and create their own sort of content off the back of it. And that led them to making a living, doing something kind of different. And then, you know, the likes of um, MTV's drop-in TV mm-hmm. picked it up and sort mm. of made it a thing, made made it sort of the less, maybe the, arguably the less serious sides. Uh-huh. to mountain biking but just as you know just as beneficial to everyone you know it's showing or showcasing a totally different type of riding and showing that you don't need to go and race to enjoy your mountain biking or um even make a living out of it mm-hmm. well I, we talked in an earlier or in another episode that may or may not have been released because obviously the <laughs> <laughs> the release schedule of this isn't the same as our recording schedule no um you know, we talked about some of those early days of, of mountain bike videos, um, which are sort of like, you know, almost gonzo in their style, but they followed, they were kind of like magazine shows. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, the focus maybe wasn't there on the race results. It was like, you know, a, a bunch of people going out, taking the piss, having a bit of fun. Yeah. You know, jumping off anything they could see and all that sort of stuff. Uh, well, and then, you know, um, someone we'd have to mention is Hans Ray. Mm-hmm. Just because what he did, how he elevated mountain biking in the mainstream by, you know, kind of taking his seriously amazing trial skills, 
and then putting them in front of TV audiences. And, um, he, you know, he's done stunt work on films. Yeah. He had a part in that. We spoke about before <laughs> yeah. that crazy American Miami TV Blue or something, was it? Something like that. <laughs> something like that. Um, and, you know, he was probably one of the best paid mountain bikers mm. of the 90s without ever really having to race. Yeah. He probably didn't even need to do, you know, I know he started in trials competitions, but I can't imagine he did a whole lot of those at, at the peak of his fame. Yeah. I guess from Hans Ray, you go on to maybe like Ryan Leach, who, again, another sort of trials rider over in the US. We had our UK scene for trials, you know, mm. the Ashtons, for example, then Chris Atkrig, Dan McCaskill. But in the US, you know, Ryan Leach was there, who then went on to, you know, diversify himself with his sort of his coaching apps and videos and stuff where you could pay, sort of get mm. like a regular feed of videos like that. And, you know, that was kind of pre... There's a few people doing that now. There's a few guys who do sort of coaching. There's a few people who maybe use social media to, you know, offer sort of advice and stuff like that. But I guess he was the first to do that, really. Maybe. I think he, well, no, <laughs> I think he was. I th I, yeah, he probably was. Because you, you bought like a program over the internet, I guess, with um, like little videos and stuff yeah. like that, which would be delivered for whatever the fee was. And you'd go through his riding coaching series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's it. You know, I guess uh, that's another thing I was going to say just about um, the effort it takes now to be a pro mm -hmm. requires probably some coaching. So even now, it's just more commonly accepted that even just to ride at a reasonable standard, you're going to have some coaching. Mm -hmm. So Ryan Leach doing what he did then and kind of pushing that skills thing. Now you see how many skills coaches are around in probably every country. Yeah. Especially for like retired racers. Something yeah. for them to keep their careers going. Yeah. Yeah, I can exactly. imagine when you stop racing, you're like, right now, now what do I do? Or and even that's to, like an avenue for them to keep making money through biking. Yeah. Even potentially to supplement, you know, guys who or girls who do race at a high level, but maybe aren't the pinnacle. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, to go and race at that level now, as we sort of spoke about, it's so high. So those guys have got their own fitness coaches. I would hazard a guess to say, most of the guys and girls would also have some kind of mental coach mm -hmm. um, at the very pointy end of it, at least. Um, if you're just looking to have a stab at it, there's already this massively high bar set at the very top end, mm -hmm. which takes a hell of a lot of commitment. And you can kind of see why people are going, I want to be a pro rider, but probably don't want to risk my life on a weekly basis and then have to invest all this time in training you know it's very much like the how professional road cycling is mm. it's a huge commitment it's quite a selfish lifestyle where you're looking to recover train recover and and not really be able to do a whole lot else outside of that we're at a point now where you know the the top people competing in the free ride world or you know the slope style that sort of stuff there's just a bit more fun to it they mm -hmm. can kind of probably make a bit of cash out of doing you know vlogs and um social media stuff for the brands they still commit to practice and training and and doing all that sort of stuff but it's maybe not as rigid or structured mm -hmm. as that of a racing career but they can still make some decent cash is it worth talking then about like the current state of how to be a pro where i know we've sort of obviously touched on it a lot but there is still the racing but there's a lot of people or there's some people at least making a living out of being a mountain bike without touching race bikes and we've moved on from hands ray we're on to you know the modern day thing of mm. matt jones for example 
um, Marin Rider. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nice. Got to get that in. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess Danny Mac, Danny McCaskill, one of the first to sort of really go big time, big time with that outside of, again, Hans Ray. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then a lot of the, you know, the racers who, you know, one of the biggest names of downhill mountain biking really still is is Brendan, Brendan Fairclough. But maybe hasn't always had the race results to back up sort of his elevated position in the world of downhill. It's like Cade Edwards, I guess, as well. Yeah. An amazing rider, but he's not really been at the, the sharp end of the racing for, mm-hmm. for a wee bit. Yeah. Um, Brendan's a funny one. And I suppose Matt Jones similarly, because they they cut their teeth in competition. Yeah. You know, Brennan was like a consistent top five. Always, you know, he was a, he was a regular person, regular guy on the podium. Mm-hmm. He's pretty switched on when it comes to how he kind of structures his deals and what he wants to do as well. Because of all the people I've met that do this professionally, there's it would be hard to say that I know anyone who enjoys it more right. than him. He he genuinely loves riding his bike so much, uh-huh. and that is always the sort of at the forefront of his mind. Mm-hmm. I would say. He's not stupid and he understands what he's worth and he knows that he can go and do these crazy things like Rampage. He'll make sure he gets, you know, his money's worth, mm-hmm. you know, what he deserves out of it. You know, he's um he's a switched on dude. He mm-hmm. knows he knows his stuff. So I guess the question next is like, where does the you know, the pro rider of the future go if they want to make money out? You know, if you if you're listening, you want to make money out of mountain biking. What are you going to do? Are you going to go racing? Are you going to go content creation? And if so, what sort of angles might be bigger in the future? Aside, obviously, from appearing on the MBK podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, this is how we make our millions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm just yeah. going to drive off my portion in a minute. <laughs> um, I guess uh, racing's tough, and it's probably the most professional it's ever been. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, if you're going to, make a go of that you've got to be properly dedicated but likewise now there's more and more people um with their own youtube channels mm-hmm. um and when you see the guys that are the guys and girls that are successful at that the commitment that they have to put in the amount of time that they're filming a lot of them edit themselves i mean it's it's a serious amount of work mm-hmm. so it's just as professional but in a very different way um you might potentially make more going down that route possibly if you're really successful but equally you need an angle and you yeah. need to be like you were saying Rach you've got to be really creative yeah right? you've got to be super creative because there's so much out there mm-hmm. and people are spoiled for choice with that so to stand out from the crowd you've just got to be on it with the creative aspect of your content I guess I guess see like Sam Pilgrim is probably the best one a great example of that someone who you know competed was very successful at what he did in terms of competition, but yeah. has moved on to become like social media, YouTube, Instagram, Sensation. TikTok, whatever it is these days, Bebo, you know. But in terms of being creative, you know, he's the one who's putting like little steering wheels on his bike or doing a backflip in, on a tricycle, that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe it's not for everyone and very, there's going to be very few people who can maybe emulate what he's done, but he's carved his niche and he's doing pretty well out of it. And he works seriously, works seriously. properly hard. I mean, and he edits all his own stuff. Yeah. So his brother shoots it, but Sam always wants to have the oversight of the mm-hmm. edits, so he does it all himself. Mm-hmm. And he stay up late into the night, yeah. properly cracking on and getting it done. So, yeah, I think um, what's great is it's how diverse it is now in terms of what you can do mm-hmm. and how creative you can be. I mean, being that creative 
not it's hard. easy. Yeah, right. I mean, f- I like Fabio Wibmer. He's yeah, another mm-hmm. one who's pretty creative with. It's got the skills, and yeah. then yeah, he seems to create pretty creative edits. Yeah, on a regular basis. Yes, yeah. Danny Mac and Danny Mac. Yeah, hugely in that regard. We sort of mentioned Killian Bron earlier on. What's the what's the deal with him? Yeah, so he's he does a lot of well, he does a lot of the avalanche, so mega avalanche, and there's one in Peru and just mm-hmm. big mountain, pretty gnarly routes, similar to what G. Afton's starting to do now with like ridge lines and. Yeah, in amazing locations, which is cool to see, mm-hmm. and creative riding as well. Yeah, I guess a lot of his stuff's shot first person, so he's kind of he's rarely the face of the videos, but is often you know he's the one who's he's creating it and he's riding these mad lines with a camera on his chest, just to sort of he works a lot with common. He's a common soul athlete, and they make some incredible films. But he <laughs> it's it's not like his personality is the center of of the of the content. That's it's his, his riding. Purely his riding because he's so talking. He goes to crazy places, massive dolomites or Mexico or, or whatever it is. I guess that's an angle that not many people are currently doing, even though it's possibly the obvious angle. I suppose it's some something similar, or maybe um, Remy Metayer. Yeah, doing fairly different stuff out in Canada, just because. I don't know if you remember, he did that um, He did that video from uh, Whistler probably 10 years ago and it was just insane. Mm-hmm. And, and since then, he's always tried to sort yeah, of up yeah, yeah. it. But he's kind of self-shooting loads of stuff and mm-hmm. he, 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 you know, he does, he has his own unique take on it mm-hmm. and he does some really, really cool, cool bits and pieces. Yeah. Similar, like, you know, Johan Borelli was doing yeah. similar. Um, and now he has his whole tour de nar yeah. thing going on out there, which looks absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. I guess the thing with Johan as well, he's a big personality. This is a thing, like, I think when we talk about, you know, the YouTubers or the Instagram people, you know, when they've got themselves on camera, it's often like a hyped up version of themselves. I mean, obviously we're this chatty and exciting <laughs> all the time. <laughs> we're not putting this on in the slightest, but you know, like you really do have to like amp yourself up massively if you're going to be on camera to sort of make it look anything other than a little bit humdrum and a little bit. Oh yeah, totally. And as soon as the camera's off, like, you know. You imagine <laughs> you imagine doing that like two or three days a week. Like you said, Rach, the, how creative you have to be. Hmm. And, and Tom, like how much enthusiasm you need mm. in order to keep people engaged right if you've had a crap morning mm-hmm. and then oh, i've got to shoot this video and then that comes across like that sadly you know people's attention span seems to be shrinking they're mm-hmm. not interested and there is so much choice out there they just move on to the next thing yeah while it's super diverse and you can kind of get into all sorts of different avenues of making a living through riding a bike equally nowadays it's so saturated you really need to stand out mm. and you need to be good at what you do in order to kind of make a go of it mm-hmm. yeah you've got to have a diverse set of skills yes. you can't just be good at riding a bike or just have a big personality you've got to have all those things that make a good good content yeah so creative good at the editing or like artistic eye i guess as well as yeah. being able to ride a bike i'm screwed and, then. i was yeah. gonna say <laughs> why are we why are we writing why are we not on the video team I tell you what, Max, MUK's videographer, Max, he's the one. He's the one on the team with a, a bright future. Yes, that's why I just write. <laughs> Sit behind the pen. Don't want that bright future. <laughs> so it sounds like over the last forty years, the way of kind of making money out of mountain biking, much like the industry itself, has grown exponentially. No longer do you have to be at the top end of the races getting your face in a magazine. There are loads more opportunities, but 
I think because of that, it's probably a little bit, it's still really difficult. You've still got to work really hard. It's still got to be super, well, you've got to be super professionals now. There's no point in getting up slightly hungover and expecting to go and win a race. No, you have to have either put your time in on the road bike, in the gym, on the downhill bike, XC bike, whatever it is. Put the time in, getting your videos done. Premier Pro. Premier Pro, building your MySpace following. <laughs> all the followers, all of that lot. And and as we we're saying, be super creative mm. and really passionate about what you do. But it's not to say it can't be done. No. Just got to work hard for it. Exactly. All right. Well, I think on that bombshell, <laughs> how to make lots of money, you've got to be professional. What? And, and work, work hard. hard. Okay. <laughs> Are you serious? People don't just give you money anymore. Um, I think it's time to wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Robin. Thanks very much, Rach. Thanks for listening to the MUK podcast. We'll be back with another episode pretty soon.